Three or four weeks ago, we made a statement that you needed to grapple with the exclusive claim of Christ, that he was the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The problem with this statement is if we take it literally, it really means that Christianity is the only way. Now, we spent about 10 weeks walking through all of the other religions and cults that are predominant in our culture today. And we kept coming back over and over to the idea that Christ is the only way. Tonight, we're going to talk about what happens if you don't believe in him and why he's the only way. Because a lot of people just assume that, well, if you don't believe in him, then maybe there's something else. Maybe there's another default that happens, okay? Maybe if you don't believe in him, it's okay. You get another chance. And Christ says exactly the opposite. I am the only way. The way to where? Where is he talking about? He's talking about heaven. He's saying, I'm the only way and no one comes to the Father but by me. Does that sound kind of arbitrary? Does it sound kind of unfair that you have to believe in God to get away? I mean, you start thinking of all the exceptions. This is where most people go. What about the people who've never heard from him? What about the people who just happen to be born into another religion? What about the people who are really, really good and try to live a really, really good life, but just never really understood that they had to believe in Jesus? What happens? According to Christianity, too bad. Does that sound kind of harsh? Does it sound unfair? And we have to understand that most people who hear the gospel from that perspective walk away. Most people who hear the gospel from that perspective will say words like this to you. I can't believe in a God who, and then fill in the blanks. I can't believe in a God who would let a child murderer go to heaven if he accepts Christ last minute. But my neighbor who's never heard of Jesus, that person's a good person, that person doesn't get in. I can't believe in a God who does that. I can't believe in a God who will pardon somebody for a heinous crime, and yet somebody who tries to live a moral life, that person doesn't make it just because they didn't know Jesus. That's not fair. Not only is it not fair, I just refuse to believe that there's a God who who exists like that. And I've actually heard people say, if that's who God is, then F God. That's how much that person hated hearing the words that were being spoken. Let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah. If you have a Bible, open up to Isaiah. What I'm going to present tonight is a case to you that God has one attribute that, in my opinion, defines him better than any other attribute. When most people come up to you and ask you about this question, which I've actually heard and talked to a couple people in the group who've already been asked this question, it's usually phrased like this. How is it that a loving God can send someone to hell? What's the question really asking? What's the tension in the question? Yeah, there's a tension between the word love and really somebody's right to do something like send someone to hell. What the question is really saying is, if God is loving, he could not send someone to hell. And you keep preaching to me that God is love, so there's no way he could send someone to hell. Or your God is not loving if he sends people to hell. So they're trying to put us into a box of handling a God who is bound by love only. But I think that's a one-dimensional view of God. Name some other characteristics of God that we may have studied in the past or that you know. What's another characteristic of God other than he's a loving God? He's a holy God. What's another one? He's a just God. What's another one? 
righteous, merciful, redeemer, graceful. What's some great... He's a jealous God. What else? He's a wrathful God. There are times when he is so wrathful against sin. And we're going to look at that tonight. He has a right to hate something that would harm those he loves. So his wrath and his anger is righteous. The same way with his jealousness. What he's saying is, like, think of another way to say it. Not a jealous lover, but the way a mother jealously guards her children. Okay? What he's really saying is, and it's always stated in the context of idolatry, or you shall have no idols before me. I am the Lord your God, I am one, and I'm a jealous God. He's always trying to show that he's going to be slighted by your worship of something else. But we also need to remember that he is so holy and so worthy of worship that he has the right to be jealous. But we need to always understand that we try to think of God as this, we put him in a box. Even Christians do this. We forget how holy, how magnificent, how huge, how, you know, whatever the characteristic that we think of. And then we have a God that we're starting to just basically get a grasp of, and yet he's bigger than that. He's more than that. We forget that God doesn't need to justify himself to anyone. But in this culture, it seems like he does. Because again, as we're talking, the entry requirement to whether you're going to believe in him is does he fit your definition? Like you say, oh, I, I believe that God, there's a loving God. That's okay with me, you know. But if he sends somebody to hell, like, I can't believe that guy exists. Okay. See the fallacy in that? It's as if your belief dictates whether he exists or not. Okay. And we'll get to that at the end. But let's go back to his characteristics. I think the one that is the most prominent, I'm going to make a case tonight, you guys can disagree, is his holiness. I don't think any word can define God better than his holiness, partially because I don't think anybody other than God is holy. It's almost the word that if you're going to pick one characteristic that only God could possess, it would be holiness. So look at Isaiah. We're going to open up to the sixth chapter. Here's why I make my case tonight. And you guys have minds. That's why you're free to disagree. But here's my case tonight. Isaiah is written in ancient Hebrew. Ancient Hebrew was not good with punctuation. In fact, they didn't have it. And so to emphasize things, because they lived in a world outside of bold and italics, they had to come up with another convention to emphasize words, and that was repetition. By repeating words, they were emphasizing the meaning. Maybe that's why in the New Testament, in Aramaic, which also does not have punctuation, Jesus was always saying, truly, truly. Ever wonder why he said that? Was it just kind of like a cool thing? Or was he just saying, listen to me very carefully when he would use those words. Truly, truly. In Hebrew, the same thing goes on. There is only one word as a characteristic of God that's repeated three times, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And that word is holy. Read chapter 6 with me. This is a vision that Isaiah has. Now, it's a vision. It's not really happening, but he has a vision. And here's what it says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Seraphim, everybody know what that is? The angels. Okay. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and two, he covered his feet. 
And with two he flew, and one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Picture this scene that Isaiah gets to witness. He gets to glimpse into heaven in this vision. You got the angels who have six wings, two that they're using to fly. That's a good use of them. Two that are shielding their body, basically, when they say that they're shielding their feet. They're basically almost meaning their lower half. And then they've got two that are shielding their face. So even the angels that serve the Lord in his chamber basically don't look at him. He's so holy. Hear the words. One called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. This is the throne room of God. This is like the inner, 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 inner sanctum. And we get this glimpse of what it must be like to stand there with these seraphim who do nothing but cry out how holy he is all day. And they emphasize it in this great thing. Now, we've got millions of songs in the church that repeat holy, holy, holy. And you thought it was probably just because they needed extra words. Yeah. But it's because it's biblical to repeat that characteristic three times. And I said, Isaiah goes on, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah realizes, even though he's in a vision, that he has seen the Lord, and he says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Plain English, the word he uses for woe is me is the same as, basically, I'm a dead man. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner, is what he's saying. And I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord. What Isaiah identifies in this small vision is the consequence of seeing the Lord in a state of sin is annihilation. That's what he means when he says, woe is me. He really means, that, that word in the Hebrew really means, I am annihilated. Because I have seen God in my sinful state. Remember when Moses wanted to see God? Remember when Moses said to him, I have served you all these years and I just want to see you. And the Lord said to him, you cannot see me. Why? And he says something very important. The Lord says, for man cannot see me and live. Basically, what he's saying is in your sinful state, you cannot see me. You'll be annihilated. You want a visual picture? You guys ever see Raiders of the Lost Ark? Remember when they kind of lift up the ark, you know? And all the people who see that spirit just like start exploding. You remember that scene? All right, that's kind of a visual picture, if you want, of the depiction that was supposed to happen there was they violated the sanctity of the ark. They opened it. And all the people who stared into the spirit of the Lord in that scene just blew up, you know? Now, yeah, they had some cool special effects and they were doing it. And I'm sure that the people who were standing there probably would have blown up too. They, were, they made a Hollywood little fake thing where if you just don't look at it, it's okay. All right. Isaiah knows better. Now, here's what happens. God doesn't leave him there in a state of saying, all right, you're right. You figured it out. You're annihilated. He goes on 
to do something that mirrors exactly what's going to happen with us in order for us to see the Lord again. What's the action that happens? Isaiah understands his plight. He knows what's going on. He knows what's going to happen. And suddenly, one of the angels flies to him, takes a coal out of the fire, and goes over to Isaiah with a burning coal and singes his lips. Why? Why does this seraph singe the lips? Yeah, it's an act of purification. Remember, Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips, signifying his sin. Of course, I'm sure Isaiah had other sins, but he's basically using that as a metaphor. I'm sinful. And so the seraph, basically at the will of God, goes to the fire and singes his lips. He burns away the lips that are sinful. And then says, now that you are pure and clean and you can stand in my presence Who is going to go for me? Who can we send to take this message out? And Isaiah says, me, send me. This is exactly why I think we start to see what it's like to enter into God's presence. You're thinking like, what does this verse have to do with hell? Well, we're looking at the entry requirements for heaven. We start with the proposition that if you're going to walk into the kingdom of heaven, you cannot be in a state of sin. Why? Because you'll be annihilated. And God knows that. God knows that annihilation is sure for anyone who comes. When he says the penalty for sin is death, he wasn't just kidding around. He wasn't like trying to say it'll lead to just your physical death. He meant you're going to be annihilated. If you come into my presence, when you go back to the Garden of Eden and you say, why did he banish them? They just committed one sin, but one sin was enough. It's over. You've got to leave the presence of the Lord. In the Garden of Eden, God was pleased to dwell with his people in the garden. The minute they sinned, you got to go outside the garden. You got to go. And now we see Isaiah understanding this deep truth. Moses understood this truth. And we see throughout the Old Testament clues that are coming. That there is sin, we can't have it, we need to find a way to atone for it. The nation of Israel followed God's law for a long time and they would slay different sacrifices to atone for their sin. God promised, of course, an ultimate sacrifice and we know that's Jesus. But now that we have Christ's sacrifice, here's the ultimate point. Christ basically says, I'm the only way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father. Why does he make the statement? Because he knows that his blood is going to be the only thing that saves us. Now, this always trips non-Christians up, and it trips a lot of Christians up. Why does it have to be that way? Why does it have to be Christ? I mean, couldn't God come up with another plan to save us? I mean, this is an important question that people skip over. They just assume, yeah, well, it must be Christ. Okay, yeah, that's a good reason. I mean, God is holy. We can't enter into his presence without being washed of our sins. So Christ died for our sins, we go to heaven. But what they miss is like, why Christ? Why couldn't it have just been water? Why couldn't God say, here's my plan. I want you to do 45 hula hoops in a row and you'll get to heaven. That's what it is for saving grace. Couldn't God pick anything he wanted? Okay, so your point is that if he's perfect, he had to pick the perfect plan. And if there was another way, he wouldn't have put Jesus through it because why would you go that route? Does anyone disagree? Could God have done anything he wanted to for 
to find our salvation? Uh, You know what? I don't know the answer for sure. But here's where the tension starts to come in. And this is Holy Week. You should be thinking about it this week. We know that you can't enter the presence of God without being reclaimed or redeemed or washed from your sins. And we know he picked Jesus. Basically picking himself to come down and die for us. Here's the tension. He wants to be loving, but he's got to be just. He wants to be merciful, but he's got to punish somebody. And that's why Jesus becomes the only way. You have to find somebody who's 100% holy already, who does not deserve to die so that they can take the place of somebody else. If God comes to me and says, John, you've sinned, who will stand in your place? I'll be like, Cody will. He's like, but it's too late. Cody's already sinned. I'm like, Angela, like too late. And I start pointing at every person in the room and then every person in this city and then every person in this state and every person in the world. And I end up with like, another planet? He's like, time's up. Have you found somebody yet who hasn't sinned, who can actually take the punishment? Because all the people you named equally deserve the punishment. So it doesn't do me any good. That's the reason Jesus is the only perfect solution to the dilemma. Because his need for justice has to be meted out on somebody who has the ability to sin and doesn't. That's why it was so important for Satan to tempt Jesus. Because he knew that Jesus was not just God. He was fully man. He was fully God. And there's a lot of things that Christians miss this point. There's heresies throughout the church that he was just God on earth. You know what? He was fully man at the same time. He had the temptation, at least, to sin and could have succumbed to it. Otherwise, the devil wouldn't have been following him around, basically, trying to get him to screw up. The devil had an easy job, just one sin and it's over. All of mankind is lost. But look at where we are in our progression. We understand that you can't go into his presence in a state of sin. We're now beginning to appreciate that without Jesus, nothing would save us. And that leads us to the final point, which is, okay... So it's not so much a question of how a loving God could send someone to hell. If you really wanted to ask the question, you'd think, God, why would you even go so far to come back and get me? You should have just left us alone. We screwed up. We screw up every day. And the fact that you went to the lengths that you did to sacrifice your own son that I might go to heaven, I don't think that we should be in a position to question him as to why other people don't get to go because he's made it free for everybody. It's still a hard doctrine. C.S. Lewis wrote that if there was one thing that he could jettison from the Christian faith, it would be the doctrine of hell. If there was one thing that would make his job as an apologist or an evangelist easier, it would be to get rid of this doctrine entirely and just forget about it. Because people have so much difficulty with it. And I think we do too. Because here's our temptation. We know that God is holy We know we can't enter into his presence in a state of sin. I think deep down, every one of us knows that Jesus Christ is the only way. And you could start to appreciate how perfectly he fits the puzzle piece when you see God trying to find an answer. I want to be loving, but I've got to punish 
I've got to be just and, and, and righteous and angry towards sin, but merciful and graceful. And so the only answer is, I'm going to love the people I created, and I'm going to take it all out on my son. When you see that piece of it, and you move forward, the only real issue is, why don't other people just want to believe that? Let me analyze that in a second. But let me give you one illustration. You guys might have heard me say this. If you want to see the perfection of God's work, you guys have heard me talk about the example of the widow or the poor woman who appeared before the judge. Okay? It's a true story in New York during the Depression. Judge LaGuardia, who was actually the mayor of the city, was presiding over night court and he saw this poor woman who was brought up on charges of stealing a loaf of bread. And the woman said to him, but your honor, I have a sick daughter, I have grandchildren who can't eat, I have no job, I have no husband, and I have no money. And they're starving. And I stole a loaf of bread so that my grandchildren had something to eat. The judge turned to the shopkeeper who was pressing the charges and said, what do you have to say? And the shopkeeper said, your honor, if we let her go, then everybody will steal. This is the depression. Everyone is going through a tough time right now. You can't let her off. And this is kind of God's position. He looks at the woman and he says, I want to show mercy. But he looks at the shopkeeper and says, but I am a God of law and order as well. And I want to uphold what is just and righteous. So what does he do? He sentences the woman to $10. Which during the depression probably would have bought you a house. He says, I sentence you to $10 for stealing, but here's what I'm going to do. He takes off his hat. He throws in the $10 out of his own wallet. And he makes the bailiff walk around the courtroom collecting money for the woman. He charges everybody in the courtroom 50 cents for what he says, according to the legend, for living in a city where a woman has to steal to feed her grandchildren. That was their their penalty. And they collected about $50 for the woman. And even though her sentence was confirmed... She was able to pay the money and go home. That's what God is doing for us this Holy Week. He is looking at us and saying, I promised you if you sinned, you would die. The penalty was death. I really want to be merciful, but I cannot let the penalty go. So like the judge, his answer was, I'll pay the penalty myself. I'll have my son pay the penalty for you. Now, I think it brings appreciation to what we're going to be doing during Holy Week. I think we can appreciate what, what God has done. But I think this is a powerful answer that we need to be aware of because people will ask you this question for the rest of your life. I guarantee it. You're going to hear it over and over. And as the years go by, you're going to hear it more and more as we become more and more of a post-Christian world where Christianity has lost the presumption of truth. You're going to hear the question over and over. What's the question? How could a loving God send anyone to hell? And you could have an answer, or you could say, what did that guy say again? There was an answer, I just don't remember what it is. I think the ultimate answer is, if you refuse to accept the sacrifice that he laid down for us, what choice does he have? I mean, he's already gone to all the lengths by finding the only way, and then he finds out that that way means he's got to send his own son to die for us. And he does that too. And he doesn't charge us for it. 
He doesn't hold it against us. He says, I will forget your sin. I will cast it as far as the east is from the west. And we still have people who go, I just can't believe a God would do that. And with their own words, they've just condemned themselves. Why? Because they refuse to believe in the very thing that's going to save them. One of the things that I think is too bad about the church is we started off, if you remember American history, with like great preachers like Jonathan Edwards. Remember, anybody know who Jonathan Edwards is? Great famous literature that he wrote during the Puritan era. It's sinners in the hands of an angry God. Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan preacher who preached hell, fire, and brimstone. And he would, made no bones about it. He would tell people how they were going to burn, you know. And then we had preachers that came after him. You know, the turn or burn type preachers. I went to see one when I was like seven. You know, this guy was talking about like, tonight if you don't repent, you're going to hell. And I was so scared. I like went up there to accept Jesus, even though I had already accepted him before. <laughs> but just to make sure, like maybe his was a little different than mine, you know. I wanted whatever he had, the snake oil he was selling. But you know what happened is a funny little thing happened on the way to our talks about hell is we started realizing that, you know, I don't think that this is a great idea. So we stopped talking about it. We started talking about God like he's some big Santa Claus, you know. He loves you so much he wants to save you. And people actually stopped understanding what he was saving us from. I myself was one of these people. If you asked me 10 years ago, 5 years ago, what is hell like? I'd say, I don't know. One cannot really know what hell is like. Maybe it's a dark place. Maybe it's a place where Jesus is not. Maybe just the absence of God makes you feel like you're in hell. Maybe you're actually still on earth the whole time. The Bible's pretty clear about what hell is like. It's not very pretty. It's also not very cold. <laughs> okay? And that was my, I like that idea. I have to confess that I like the idea of having a cold hell. It was cold. It was dark. It was somehow on the other side of the earth from heaven. You know, like on the moon or something. So you're kind of cold and hanging out and you felt miserable because you could see the party going on, but you weren't there. And then you're kind of hanging out with your friends going, gosh, I guess we should have listened, but it's too late now. Oh, well. And that was the definition of hell. You know what? Unfortunately, Jesus doesn't say that. And we as a church for the last 20, 30, I don't know how many years have refused to deal with it head on. We stopped believing in Satan. That was the first problem. We start, started believing that he was just kind of a myth. And then we stopped believing in Satan's home. We just don't believe in hell anymore. Here's what Jesus says about that place, just so you guys get some visual pictures. He says, Do not be amazed. This is in John 5, 28, 29. Do not be amazed, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will be condemned. John later sees these people in his book of Revelation and he says, And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So it could be very well that Hades is that intermediate place. They're thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is a second death, says John. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So... I used to like to think of it as a nice, cool place, lonely. But it seems like the word fire keeps coming up, you know? So that some of those pictures of hell being a fiery place didn't just come out of someone's imagination. They came out of the Bible. Jesus spoke about hell. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, this is in Mark, 
it's better that you go into the next life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. There's that fire word again. You know, it never goes out. You know, he keeps talking about that. In Matthew, Jesus tells us, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I love the weeping and gnashing of teeth verse because as you talk about the kingdom of heaven parables, you'll often see people talking about weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, He'll say, you are an evil servant, you go outside where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So when you see that kind of line in the Gospels and the parables, just add to it the fact that the weeds are going to be thrown into the fire and they seem to be used at the same way to talk about both of them. So I guess we should just be fair to the text and it's kind of a little side tangent. But I wanted to go into it because it's unpopular. Like I said, C.S. Lewis and a lot of other people wish that this doctrine just didn't exist. It would be so much easier if Jesus had said, if you believe in me, you'll be in paradise. And if you don't, you're just kind of like, you're just gone. Too bad for you. Then like people would go like, oh, I missed out, sorry. you know, And then they just kind of disappear. Instead of thinking about it, in terms of eternal suffering. And I think we have to admit to ourselves that no matter how much we understand God's holiness, we must not understand it enough because we still feel sorry for the people who are going to suffer eternally. I'm not saying we shouldn't feel sorry for them, but we still think, like, God, isn't there another way? I mean, what about those people in those other religions? What about those people that I know that are so good? You know, and this doctrine tempts more Christians to fall away, I think, than non-Christians. I know a lot of Christians who just can't get their arms around this doctrine that God would send someone to hell to an eternal suffering place because he hates sin that much. That's got to be some intense hatred of sin. And that's why when we started our talk, I talked about God's characteristics So when we talk about God's hatred for sin, it's not like this much hatred for sin. It's not like this much hatred for sin. It's so much hatred for sin that anyone stained with sin is going to be sent to eternal suffering because he hates sin that much. And the effects of sin and what sin does in our lives. It's a hard thing for people to do because they're stuck on the I just can't believe in a God who and then fill in the blanks. But if we're true, we have to come to the conclusion of all this. What does it all mean? And I've said this before, but it, it's, hard when it, it's hard to sink in, I think, sometimes. God loved the world so much that he sent his only son, right? We know that verse. God sat at the beginning of time deciding whether to create or not create, knowing the fall was going to happen, knowing that he was going to have to send his son into the world and die this brutal death to save us, knowing that a handful are going to make it. And, and he's toying with this, should I do it? Should I not do it? Should I do it? Should I not do it? And he says, you know what? It's totally worth it. Because for me to be in heaven with those who do accept the sacrifice is going to be so worth it. It's going to be just like I planned it in the first place in the garden. 
So you got to imagine how much God must love his plan for the world, even though he knew Satan was going to try to screw it up, and even though he knew he was going to conquer in the end and win. you got to know how much he loves his plan, and yet he leaves the earth and he gives it to you and me to make the plan happen. He leaves it to you and me when we ask, how could God send all those people? He asks the question back to us, well, what are you doing to reach out to people who are in danger of finding themselves in hell? I've told you before, if I were God, I would not have trusted us with this job. If I were God, there is no way in the world I'm trusting any of you people or me with the job of taking his word to the ends of the earth. If I were God, I'd be like, I love these people so much, there is no way I'm going to trust John or anybody else he knows to be the people that are going to witness to the world. But he did. And there must be a reason for that. And I'm sure he takes it seriously. Now, this isn't so I can lay the massive, you know, holy guilt trip. So when you get up to heaven, he goes, so how many did you save? You're like, hee hee. Okay, that's not the purpose. But it's just to get an appreciation of he could have done it a different way. He could have had Jesus stick around for a long time. He could have had repeat visits to earth every once in a while. Like, hey, just checking in. I want to remind you guys that I'm still the guy. You know? But he didn't. He left it to us. And he left it to us to take this word. So, Here's the the thought for tonight. Every one of us knows people in our lives that don't know Christ. Every one of us knows, maybe we've had arguments with them, maybe they've had discussions, maybe they've told us flat out, here's why I don't believe in Jesus. I'm glad you're at least having the dialogues. That's good. Because we need to be talking to those people because what's in store for them is not a good place. But I do know that Jesus left it to us for a reason. You know? And maybe there's times when we think, Jesus, if you would only come back, everyone would believe in you. Jesus, if you would only do this. God, if you would only do this. And you know what Jesus says to you? We read this parable two or three weeks ago. Remember what Jesus said? His response was in that parable about Lazarus, you know, where the, where the rich man is sitting in hell. And he's saying, Abraham, let me go back to the world and tell them where I am. Let me go back. And tell my five brothers to believe and to change their life. You know, almost like in a Scrooge type thing, you know. Like, give me one more chance. And Abraham responds in the parable. What does he say? He says to him, you know what? Even if a man should come back from the dead, they won't believe you. And that was, of course, Jesus saying about himself, prophesying how he was going to come back from the dead. And people still didn't believe him. So when we're tempted to think, you know what, God, you left it on the wrong hands. You should have had an annual visit to earth to make sure that people believed in you. I still think that if Jesus came back annually, there'd be people who go, oh, sure, he comes back once a year. You know, there would still be people who are not satisfied. Because if you get to the right heart of the matter, this isn't about the truth or about Jesus or about hell. This is about people who want to find a reason not to believe If Jesus is really true, I'm going to have to do something about it. So we come full circle, like we said three or four weeks ago. The exclusive claim of Christ is this. He's the only way. And every single person who hears that claim has got to do something about it at some point in their life. They either got to accept it or reject it. I know lots of people who reject it. And I know some of them reject it because I can't believe a loving God will send somebody to hell. 
And maybe now you'll have an intelligent conversation with them and explain to them how all this dynamic might work. But you know what? They're probably going to tune out halfway through. Because if you tell them an answer and they believe it, now they've got to find a new reason not to believe in Jesus. This time it'll be because, well, you know, they changed the book so many times, it's not true. Or because, you know, there's so many contradictions, how do you know? Or because, you know, that creation stuff is baloney. You know, in the end, what's really going on is you've got to really change your life around if you really believe what the text says. Let's pray, and then we're going to do some worship and uh, hang out tonight and do some fellowship. Jesus, my heart is so heavy when we talk about topics like this because I know that in my own life there's people I know who just refuse to believe in you, who think the very notion of you is just as plausible as any other myths that float around this earth. And yet, Lord, I know that in every one of our lives there's a moment, maybe just one, Lord, maybe two, where we've known without a doubt that you are absolutely real. And Lord, I pray that you would increase those moments in our lives. We're so privileged just to have one or two of those moments in in a brief and fleeting life that we have with you, Lord. And maybe, Lord, there's people here tonight that have never really experienced that level of depth where they've just, just known, where all arguments just kind of fade away and all thoughts and all doubts and just all emotion. Just know, Lord, because we felt your presence in that way. And Lord, as much as I would love to have those moments all through my life, I know that you've taught us that we're supposed to be a generation that lives in faith, Lord, and we're rewarded for the things that we don't see. Lord, when we talk about this subject, there's so many people who have questions, and I hope tonight, Lord, that we've at least been able to open our minds enough that we might provide a cohesive answer. And if we still feel jumbled up, Lord, I hope that we spend more time going deeper into this topic, because, Lord, this is something that we are going to encounter throughout our whole lives. This question has been asked for hundreds of years, and, Lord, it will continue to be asked over and over, and so many Christians just don't even have an answer. I pray tonight, Lord, that we would at least begin to formulate one so that we could at least be seen as a people who have reasonable and compelling answers for the questions that are out there. And Lord, thank you for the fact that you gifted us with your your presence on this earth, your teachings, and your ultimately your death. This week, Holy Week, Lord, we commemorate your death and your resurrection. We commemorate your sacrifice and your love. We see that justice was handed down on your son, Lord, at the same time, we receive the benefit and the pardon. So we receive that gift and thanksgiving, Lord, and we pray throughout this week that we would be mindful of what it took to give us that. And, Lord, we're mindful of the fact that you left it up to us to take this word to other people and to tell other people about what you've done. You love the world so much, Lord, and you left it in our hands. I wonder why. Praise you in your name. Amen.